Well, good evening, everyone. Um, someone asked what a zip zips was, right? What, what is a zip? Okay, what is a zip? I have no idea. All right. What's a terp? A turtle, okay. A Okay. Is there? Do you guys have a hand signal for your school that you do? Oh, I was gonna take a photo and like. Okay. Right. All right. <laughs> oh gosh. Oh, gosh. All right. Oh, okay. Interesting. All right. Well, hey, guys, good evening. It's so good to be with you um, and to give our brother Chris some much-needed rest, although he was, and you were piping it out there, so, yeah. Um, but yeah, tonight we're taking a break from your series on relationships, and we're going to look at this, um, this subject of vocation. It's a, you know, it's a huge subject. It's, it is important. Um, it's ancient. There's all these different ways we could approach it, and so tonight I'm going to try to give a kind of a fresh look at the subject um, as you've probably heard, if you're doing it on Thursdays, you've probably heard this. The word vocation comes from this Latin word vocare, meaning to call or to summons. It's where we get our word calling from. And, uh, you know, whether you realize it or not, this idea of calling is something that we're always internally processing. Um, you know, we, um, and the reason that is is because we make the majority of our decisions in life based upon our sense of call, who we are and what we're called to, whether that's implicit or explicit. Um, But there's this common myth that I think many of us believe, maybe in fact all of us have believed at some point in our life, and it's this idea that there will come this day that we will cross this threshold and life will just click. That there will be this moment in time that we'll just kind of walk through this kind of mythical threshold and everything will just begin to make sense and we'll have arrived in life and... um, and, for example, when I was 15, and you guys can resonate with this because this was just a few years ago for some of you, um, I could not wait to get a car. I could not wait to start driving. And the car that I was going to be getting was this beat-up old white truck. It was so bad that actually when I had to park it, I had to park it on a tilt because there was a hole in the gas tank. So the gas actually had to, just so it could run to the other side. I mean, it was, it was bad. But I was so eager to drive this car because I thought once I have this car, it was going to make my life efficient. It was going to bring new joy to my life. I was going to have the freedom to come and go and go see my friends. And I began to filter all of my life through having this car. It was this threshold that I could not wait to cross. And I get my car, and after a year of having this car, the novelty wears out, and I have to pay for gas. I'm getting parking tickets. I'm keeping up the maintenance. And I, you know, it, it just wears out. But then the new threshold comes, and I can't wait to graduate high school. I mean, I just can't wait to move beyond the the drama of high school, living under my parents' roof, the broken relationships, the ex-girlfriends, all of that, and to get into college. And then you get to college and you, you, you have all these kind of dreams and this, these aspirations of what you want to do in college. And then, for some reason, you can't wait to get out of college. And you can see where I'm going. There is this perpetuating myth that all of us believe that we're going to walk through this threshold someday and life is just going to click. And it, it just lingers with us. And, and, and in some sense... 
and this is where it gets confusing, is that there's something kind of true about that. There's, there's this sense in which it actually connects with a longing that we all have. There's this kind of primal longing, this ancient echo that we all feel, that life is supposed to have order, that there's supposed to be meaning, that we were created to live in this world with our God, with others, with ourselves, where there's, there's, there's peace, there's shalom. And, and, and the reason I think we have this mythical idea of this threshold is because we're longing for this sense of wholeness, this sense of, this sense of order. But, I mean, we all know that we... We're not living in paradise anymore. We live east of Eden. The scriptures remind us over and over and over again that we're no longer in the garden. We're in a wilderness. That we're not in the promised land. We're in exile. And, you know, calling, when we think about our callings, oftentimes it feels like guesswork. It feels like we, I don't really know what I'm going to do with my life. I mean, I changed my major five times. I mean, and every time I thought I knew what I was going to be doing with my life. And even to this day, I have these certain ideas of what I want to do with my life, even as a minister. And it just, it's confusing because you and I, we live in this tension. We have these longings. We have this, this, this mythical idea that we're going to walk through this threshold. And yet, um, you know, it, it never comes. And so when we look at the Bible, we see this understanding of calling that... It, God says that to be called is to be called by Him, for Him, into a life rooted in His mercy, live before His face, and for the life of the world. And so that's a big definition. I want to unpack it and look at three things when we look at Romans 12. Let me actually read this first. We never even read our passage. The thing went out? Okay. I didn't bring a Bible, but I'll pull it up on my phone. And if you have your Bible, turn to Romans 12. Okay. So Romans 12, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Um, So three things I want to look at as we look at this passage. The first is the basis of our calling. Two, there is the scope of our calling. And thirdly, there is the aim of calling. So first, the base of our calling. Paul here, he's writing to Christians in Rome. Um, Rome is arguably the foremost city in the world, the most powerful city in the world. It's at the epicenter of all things. I mean, it sets the agenda for everything politically, intellectually, culturally. I mean, Rome is everything in the world at this time. And historians will tell you that Rome, the atmosphere of Rome was a volatile place for those who were poor, for those who didn't have, um, I, who, who didn't have membership in the, the Roman Empire, and especially for Christians, for early Christians. We know from the, from the historian Suetonius that in AD 49, there was a religious disturbance that expelled all the Jews from Rome. And most likely, those Jews were actually early Christians. And then in AD 64, there was a fire in Rome that burned half of Rome to the ground. And the Emperor Nero blamed the early Christians. And as a result, they were persecuted and they were killed. Paul writes his letter to these Christians in Rome, sandwiched right between these two historical events. And here in Romans 12, he's entering into a new section in Romans. And he's trying to instruct these Christians on what it looks like to actually live out their calling in this type of environment. Yet before he can even launch into this section, he appeals to them and he says, 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. Now, that may seem like a throwaway statement to us, but Paul, right here in this statement, is embedded the central theme of his entire letter. Now, I'm not the biggest fan of the type of question I'm about to ask you. I'm a big picture guy. I love ambiguity. I love nuance. But if someone were to come to you and say, hey, Christian, I think you're weird. I think your God is weird. I think everything you believe is weird. But I want you to tell me, what is the central idea of Christianity? If you could distill it down to me, what is the central idea of Christianity? What would you say? How could you distill Christianity to someone if they asked you that? Now, when you look at Paul, Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. He wrote 13 letters of the New Testament. Um, a lot of it's confusing. In fact, the Apostle Peter says it is. It's hard to understand. And, and Christians respectfully disagree on that. But the one thing that Paul is absolutely clear on, the one thing that he never equivocates on, the one thing he's never ambiguous about, is the person of Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom. All throughout Romans and all throughout Paul's letters, we get this picture of a God who has so opened himself up to the world. Literally, quite, quite literally, he has donated himself to the world through the person of his Son and by his Spirit. And through that, he has promised to restore the world, so restore the world that he would take your past, your present, and your future and completely make it whole and promise to raise it one day. To go back to the threshold metaphor at the beginning, the only threshold that you can be certain of that when you pass through and will actually make a difference in your life is when you attach yourself to Jesus, you can be sure that God's love and delight in you will never end. It's absolutely everlasting. It's the only threshold that we can actually look to and believe that this threshold will actually make a difference. Now, why does this matter in the context when we talk about calling? Well, if I can be reductionistic again, there really are only two ways you can live your life. You can live your life, you can spend your entire life working for your significance, or you can spend your entire life working from your significance. And you hear that distinction. Because the mercy of God gives you a foundation. It provides significance to your life. It overcomes the greatest barrier in your life. You are alienated from God. Your sin alienated you from God. The mercy of God has overcome the greatest obstacle in your life and has promised everything to you, the brightest future. And when you think about that in your terms of your calling, your successes can never compete with that. And your worst days can never take that from you. So as Paul launches in to what it means to have a calling, he bases it on the mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. But then secondly, there's the scope of our callings. Now, I would think that most of us, when we think of calling, we oftentimes think of our careers. We think that vocation is synonymous with occupation. But if you look at the Scriptures, you never see this correlation, this strict correlation. It does include that, but the Scriptures have this much larger view for vocation and calling. And it's here that Paul operates with that same comprehensive view. He says here, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, whether you were a Jew or a common Roman citizen, you knew what sacrifice was all about. But for Paul here, to use this image, this living sacrifice, would have been an incredibly striking image. I mean, it's, ox it's like an oxymoron, because sacrifices, they don't live, they die. 
But what Paul's doing here is he's using a common image in a new way, and he's doing two things. First, he's using this, this image to draw us back to the priestly service in the temple. If you go to the temple, you would take a sacrifice and you would offer the sacrifice on an altar to be completely consumed. Simple enough, I think we all get that. But secondly, Paul's also taking us back further and he's taking us back to the garden. Now, why the garden? Well, if you go back and you read Genesis 1 and 2, you see that God places Adam and Eve in the garden to work it and to keep it. This was no ordinary garden. This was, in many ways, this was the original temple. This is the original tabernacle. And to work it and to keep it are the same tasks that a priest would have. And so what Paul's doing here by evoking this language is he's taking us back to our original vocation, what we were originally called to. But if you think about Adam and Eve, they weren't called to offer sacrifices. There was no sacrifice to offer. There was nothing to be atoned for at the time. So what they were called to offer were themselves, a living sacrifice. And what Paul's doing here by evoking this language, is he's reminding us of our original calling. And through Jesus, the greater Adam, the second Adam, the greater priest, the greater high priest, we've been restored to that calling. And so now you and I, as living sacrifices, we're called to offer the thing that God has always wanted. Ourselves. The very thing that God is asking for us is not a bloody sacrifice that's already been offered through Jesus, but a living sacrifice. Through Jesus, this greater Adam, the true high priest, we offer ourselves back to God. Now, I'm going to just assume that none of this is confusing to you, that you get all that, that Romans 12.1, if you've heard this passage, 12.1 and 2, you've heard this passage preached, it's all about offering your life as all of life is worship. I think we all get that. I don't think there's anything confusing about that. But I do think it's radically challenging to us. Because what does that even look like? What does it look like to offer all of your life as a sacrifice. What does it even mean to be a priest in the 21st century? Well, Martin Luther, who was a 16th century monk who turned pastor, he wrote a lot about calling. And in his day, the subject of calling was quite confused. In many ways, like our day. See, for in Luther's time, in the 16th century, the idea of calling was, a true calling was the work you did for the church. To be a truly called person was to be called into the ministry. And so the only significant work was the work that was attached to the church. And Luther began to call that out. And he said, you know, if, if Jesus is the ultimate priest, and if through Jesus we are restored to our priesthood, then all of life is significant. Then everything we do is significant, as I've already said. And what Luther began to do, and the implications of, for this were huge, is that he began to say, everything we do is our calling. But he used this old word, this word we rarely use anymore, this word station. And so Luther would say that we have one calling, the common, the common calling we all share is the priesthood of believers. We all have various stations in our life. And so, for example, your calling in life right now, if you're a student, that is a station. That is a current station that God has called you to right now. That's obvious. But think about the mythical threshold idea again. If your idea right now is to get beyond where you're at, to get beyond this current station, you are default ignoring that current station. If you have roommates, they aren't just people that help you pay the bills. They aren't just people that you're sharing the rent with. But in fact, these are people that God has placed in your life to express love, to show sacrifice, to work out Christian virtues in. If you belong to a family, that is a station in your life. If you are suffering right now, that is a station in life that God has called you in, into a valley to wait for Him, to trust Him, 
to believe that He holds the totality of your life in His hands and that He has solidarity with you in Christ. If you're unemployed or underemployed, that's a station in life. All of these areas are stations. All of these are our calling. And in all of these, God is calling us to offer ourselves upon the altar of these stations. In your schooling, in your relationships, in with your roommates, all of these are stations that we're called to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And do you see the implications for this? Do you see how this dignifies everything we do in life? Rather than this just being about our jobs, it's about the totality of our lives. And then thirdly, there's the aim of our callings. You know, when, when conversations about location typically happen, we often hear this phrase, discerning your call. And in many ways, this gets at the, the heart of the discussion. I think we all are, are, in many ways, trying to discern what it is I'm supposed to do with my life. And Paul here taps into that, but he does it in a very Jewish way. He writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, there are two questions here I want us to answer to close with. What are our minds being transformed to understand? And two, how does this relate to discerning the will of God? First, what are our minds being transformed to understand? Notice he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, this world world is confusing. Because if you look at the original language, it tra- the word is eon. You know the word eon? It's a long period of time. We get this word, it's where we get the word age from. And so a, a better translation would be the word age. Do not be conformed to this age. Because what Paul is doing here is he's contrasting two different ways of thinking with two different ages. See, in Jewish theology, history was divided up into two ages. There was the present evil age, and there was the future age, the new age. And it was believed that when the Messiah came, he would usher in the new age, and he would completely transform and do away with the present evil age. Now, when you think of the ministry of Jesus, what do you see? You see someone who comes, and through his ministry, we see miracles, we see all these healings, exorcisms, we see someone offer up his life, we see someone raised from the dead, we see someone ascend into heaven, and then pour out the Spirit. And what do we see? But we see the future age break in. But the present evil age doesn't go away, but rather they overlap. And so what Paul is saying here is that if you are united to Christ, then your thinking must be conformed to this old, not to this old age, but to, the, but to the new age. It must be transformed according to this new age. And if you read the rest of the New Testament, without fail, the new age always represents the coming kingdom of God. The kingdom has come, it has been inaugurated, but it hasn't been consummated. And so the Christian mind is one that is framed according to this way. I know it may sound conceptually confusing, but if you can think of it this way, we have been delivered from the guilt and power of sin, but we still deal with the presence of sin. And that's the world we kind of live in. Evil exists side by side with God's kingdom. And so how does this relate to discerning the will of God? Well, Martin Luther, again, he saw the relationship between the kingdom of God and discerning the will of God in this unique way. And for him, it had all to do with our callings. He said that just as God hid himself in the cross and was reconciling the world to himself through his death, so he hides himself in our vocations for the life of the world. And he referred to our vocations using this beautiful phrase, the mask of God. The mask of God. And what does he mean by this? You know, when we ask God to feed us, 
when we ask God, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, and we ask God to give us our daily bread, He could send manna down from heaven. He did for Israel. But what does He normally do? He gives us farms. He gives us farmers. He gives us bakers. He gives us butchers. He gives us grocery stores. He gives us home-cooked meals. When we ask God to heal us, He could and He can miraculously heal us. But what does He do? Normally, He gives us doctors. He gives us physicians. He gives us medicine. He gives us nutritionists. He gives us healthy foods to keep us healthy. When we ask God to teach us, He could telepathically communicate information into our brains, but He doesn't. What does He do? He gives us teachers. He gives us books. He gives us education. He gives us pastors. When we ask God to forgive us, what does He do? But He gives us the church with the message of the gospel to proclaim the words of pardon over our lives that our sins have been forgiven. In all of these, God is hiding Himself in our vocations. And He's hiding Himself in your vocations. And when we tap into what it means to have a calling, what we're seeing is that when we look at each other's callings and we look at our callings, we're actually seeing the way God works in the world. That's the way that God actually presents Himself in the world. It's through all these various callings. And if you're familiar with the doctrine of providence, this is how we understand God's movement in the world. And I want you to get confused by this. I'm not saying that every human activity is a pure act from God. Because sin distorts this. And so we have, we're culpable, we're responsible for whatever we do. But at the same time, as Christians, if we've had our minds renewed, remember, we're seeing the world through this already not yet kingdom paradigm. That already the kingdom has been inaugurated, but not yet has been consummated. And so we can look at the world and we can ask these questions. Does this vocation, does it promote life or does it promote death? Does it promote justice or promote injustice? Does it only support the, the few or does it support the common good? And even we can look at non-Christian work and we can affirm that there's some aspect of God's work in that. We have a theology of common grace that we can even see people who deny God and yet do what God requires. And as Christians, we can affirm that. And it radically changes the way we understand vocation. When we begin to open our eyes to the fact that it's through our vocations that God is at work in the world. Frederick Buechner wrote that vocation is that place where your deep gladness meets the world's deep hunger. And so as you open your eyes to those stations you're currently in, you'll find that God is hiding himself in you to satisfy the world's deepest hunger. And where the world sees the absence of God, the Christian with a renewed mind sees the presence of God. And it's with this theology of vocation that it radically changes the way that we move in the world, that we understand all of our stations in life. And we understand that the mercy of God gives us a fresh lens by which we look at each other and the way we look at our own selves. So this is... This is vocation. I know this may sound weird, but this, this is a theology of vocation that the Bible gives us. It's comprehensive. It's holistic. It includes our jobs, but includes so much more. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank You for the clarity of Your Word. We thank You for the fact that Your Word speaks directly to our lives, that it's not this puzzle that we have to figure out, but rather, God, um, it's words that come to us in a language that we can understand. Um, but God, we thank you mostly for your incarnate word, your Lord, your Son, the Lord Jesus, for being the word that comes to us, who embodies himself in our own existence, who lives the life we should have lived, dies the death we should have died. 
who has been raised from the dead and ascended to heaven and sits at your right hand right now. Father, we appeal to him and we ask for his grace to be upon our lives, that by his spirit he would empower us in all of our various stations in life, all the various callings that we have, God. Um, God, there are many and oftentimes they're conflicting with what we think our life should look like. Um, So God, I pray you give clarity to all of us that where we're at is where we're supposed to be. And God, that through your grace and by your spirit, you would allow us um, to have joy in what we do, despite even the fact that maybe it's not what we want to do. So God, we thank you for um, this group. We thank you for being able to gather and to sing and to celebrate the work that you do in each of our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Yeah, ma'am. Yeah, yeah. Um, could you share a little bit of your journey on how you, some of the different jobs you were doing and how you kind of got called to what right. you're doing now ministry-wise? Yeah, yeah. Um, as I mentioned, I had I changed my major about five times. How so, you grew up in? yeah, yeah. I grew up in Texas, Dallas, Texas. Outside of Dallas, I grew up in a. Um, <laughs> Man, I've been surprised to see how many Dallas Cowboy fans are in Washington, though. It's like blowing my mind. Yeah. Um, I think so, yeah. There is a reason for this, though, I found out, though. There was some, like, yeah, I forget the reason, but. I see. Um, I didn't, yeah, I didn't know that. Our Lord calls us to forgive. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I I'm gonna, I would end up rambling if I went on and on about all my jobs. But I grew up in Dallas and like a I grew up on a farm, so um, I reacted to that and wanted to move into the city, and so I very quickly kind of shut down any sort of like. Um, manual labor type job and just kind of began to, I don't know, have a certain vision for what I want my life to look like. And I went to college and um, I bounced around from everything and kind of, I think, began biomedical science, then journalism, um, then some other like PR, and then ended up in communications and then ended up um, kind of discerning, I guess, wondering if ministry is where God was calling me and somehow um, found myself there. I actually worked at a law firm for about 10 years before I did that. Um, and um, yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe give some. Maybe give another question. How I discerned all that? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Well, maybe. Um, I mean, how the, did you? The, how did you? Yeah. Know that, like, I mean, the classic answer I think to how I discerned all this was. I mean, at some point, I internally began to have this sense that I was called. And so you're going to hear people say when you talk about calling, you're going to look for three things, your internal call, and there's the external call, and there's your circumstances. And so, I mean, if you only have one of those, I mean, you're kind of, there's, there's some, I mean, it's not always the case, but, and it's a process oftentimes when you're called into something. And so I began to have this internal call, but had very few options to actually do ministry and began to get plugged into a local church. And it's within that context that, my internal call began to flush itself out, and externally people began to kind of affirm gifts that I had. Um, and then there was just more and more circumstances. And so that just began to just develop and evolve over time. And I would say beyond even ministry, that, that can apply across the board to anything. So you may have this desire to do something, um, but you need to have the circumstances to, 
God's providence is going to be at work in your life, allowing those things to develop. And also you're going to have for your friends, you're going to have your family, you're going to have your classmates, you're going to have um, people you look up to, mentors, colleagues, whatever, that are going to affirm that in you. Um, and there'll be times where your internal call will actually conflict um, with what people say and what your circumstances are allowing. And, and sometimes that's just fear and sometimes it's a lack of faith. Sometimes it's the really reality that you're actually being called into something. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's just scary ground to walk into. So does that help? I don't know. Any other questions related to that? I... Yeah, man. Um, I was in Portland, Oregon, working at a church, and just through, kind of through REF friends, got connected to a ministry here um, that was being kind of at least articulated, slated as kind of an RUF to Capitol Hill. And I had been exploring RUF stuff, wondering if that's what I was being called into. And so when that opened up, I, I began kind of exploring the um, D.C. area, coming out here and just visiting and um, fell in love with it. Um, but now that I'm here, this is, I find, an extremely challenging place to live. Um, it's, um, I still love it, but it's, uh, yeah. So it was... Um, it was more of a necessity. If I could be really honest, I needed a job. And so this was the one place that God was calling me to. So, yeah. We'll close. Anybody else? Anybody else going once or twice? You can talk to Casey afterwards. Um, can you plug it in and see if we can get it back?